Hey team, welcome to Rewriting Wellbeing, the teacher's health podcast, the show that helps you thrive and not just survive both in and out the classroom. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You are joined as always by me, your host, Charlie Burley, the teacher's health coach. I hope you've had an amazing start to your week. Today, I've got a really special episode with you, one that I've been really looking forward to recording myself and one that I'm really, really excited to share with you as well. Today, we are joined by Andrew Cowley, wellbeing consultant, ex-deputy head speaker, author of the Wellbeing Toolkit and the Wellbeing Curriculum, coach for the Designated Mental Health Leads Qualification and Designated Mental Health Award, and one of our amazing speakers from our Rewriting Wellbeing event that we held last October. Andrew is passionate about teacher wellbeing and supporting schools in reimagining what wellbeing means for them and making tangible, action-based change within their community and culture. This is an episode that I've wanted to record for a very long time as someone who's a personal fan of Andrew's, who has a very well-thumbed copy of the Wellbeing Toolkit. I think thoroughly enjoyed recording this and having this conversation with Andrew. So if you're someone who is interested in health and well-being, culture, communication, and how you can grow your own culture of well-being in your school, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here is Everything Wellbeing with Andrew Cowley. So Andrew, first and foremost, thank you very much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate you giving us your time. Yeah, that's my, my, my pleasure, Charlie. Good to, uh, good to be in touch with you yet again. Yeah, brilliant. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start sort of a little bit further back in time, if that's okay. I always like to do this because I think your experience, your context is very, very important for what we're going to be talking about today and sort of the experiences you've had. So I'd like to start by sort of finding out a little bit more about you and what's brought you to this point in life, I guess, you know, professionally, personally, the whole the whole thing. What's your journey been to where you are today and why you, and why you do the things you do? Yeah, good, good, good question, and um, I'll I'll try and keep it uh, succinct but but, but relevant. Um, obviously, people know me uh, as um, from my experience through teaching. Um, I'm now retirement teaching, um, and from the work that I've, I've done uh, on well-being, my my two books and my speaking engagements. I, I talked twenty-eight years, um, but I wasn't always a teacher. Upon my, my journey through um, through education, I thought teaching would be an option at one point in time, um, and um, I had a particular love for history. History was my uh, my favourite subject. Uh, it was the A level which I scored uh, highest on, and it's what I went on to do a degree in. I thought I might possibly become a history teacher secondary. Um, or to do something else with with history at that point in time, um, but circumstances being as they they were, when I graduated, I uh, needed to go into employment because um, I had a research opportunity that didn't didn't come about, uh, and I actually ended up working in uh, the insurance business, um, and that's what brought me to uh, to the south of England because I was originally from um, from the Lancashire coast, uh, and I worked for uh, five years in. Insurance in um, initially initially in Kent and then uh, obviously in the city of London and then in uh, Docklands, um, but it was during that time that I realised I was I was not really suited to the culture 
uh, at that place. And I went back to uh, what was my first choice, which was uh, teaching. And I realised at the point in time I was going to look at primary teaching because I'd have a chance not only to share my love of history, but also my general love of learning. That was that was my um, that was in my line of thinking there. So I retrained uh, as teacher in um, when I was twenty-seven, and uh, that's when I I began that major part of my my teaching career. But it was hugely important to me that I spent that time before I became a teacher because I think that gave me a really solid grounding in life. If I'd have come in to teaching at 21 or 22, I think I would have been quite naive, particularly about uh, relationships in the workplace, how people get on with each other, support each other, uh, and how they don't get on. I think I very much learned that in five years outside. Mm -hmm. And with those years of maturity, you know, I was in that point in time, I was in you know, a stable relationship in my, my life with the, uh, the lady who became and still is my wife um, all that time ago. So that, that I think that put me in a, in a really solid position um, going into teaching. And many of those principles I found I was taking with me from my first work life into my teaching work life. Um, and that's really fed many of the things that I've um, I believed in in the course of the uh, the last now thirty years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I often think about because because obviously I've now left the classroom and and I'm I'm you know I've left teaching as well in I guess formally if you like. Um, and I often think what would have what would have happened if I'd had a bit more of a gap between graduating and starting my first position and had I gone and done something different would I be where I am today or would it have ever been the case that this would have been the other way around for me I would have followed the nutrition element before the teaching and it's yeah I, I can imagine it the way that we do things gives us different experiences because it's the environments that we are exposed to and, and the things that we pick up along the way it is indeed I think we we can learn a lot from our environment we don't simply exist in a separate sphere and a bubble away from everything that's around us we absorb everything that that happens around us we impact everyone uh with everything we do and we say and we think this point i always make when i uh when i speak at, at events um you know we, we don't live in a bubble away from it. we're not we're not hermits everything impacts us in in some way even if we shy away from it it's we can't avoid that uh, and everything impacts us, impacts us in a way that can be positive, can be negative, can be neutral. And it, it's the absorption of those experiences and what we hear and see um, shape us as the people that we are. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk a lot about that in the in the Wellbeing Toolkit. Mm -hmm. This is sort of how I came across you. I mean, you can see my copy here. It's well, well thumbed. Um, <laughs> it's got all the post-it notes. Um, but this is sort of how one of the ways I came across you sort of read, finding this online actually, and sort of starting to look at that. And, and obviously you've spoken at our, our event that we did in October and you and I have, have spoken quite a lot in the past as well. But there's, before we sort of talk about this book, there's one, th one sort of line that, or two lines, no, yep. Two lines um, that I saw in the acknowledgements at the very, very beginning that sort of that I saw I read this and I thought right this is the book that I need to get my teeth into and I wish I wish I had this 
earlier in my teaching career. I really, really do because there's just so much in it. But the, the line is, well-being needs to be lived. I mean, that straight away for me was, was like, yes, it's not it's not a, a piece of paper or something on the on the bulletin board. Uh, well-being needs to be lived. We have all lived plenty of the tough times and those times can make us and shape us, but ultimately don't define us. And that line there about about our tough, tough experiences not defining us, I found really, really powerful personally. And I thought, actually, if we can take, the, you know, education is tough. We can't we can't sugarcoat it. We It's a really, really tough place at the moment. But if we can take that sort of mentality into schools of, okay, things are very, very tough, but that doesn't have to define us. There are things that we can do. I think, you know, every person involved in education's health and well-being would benefit. So that that was the line for me that was like, right, okay, this is this is the book. This is the book I've got to read. But in um in the well-being toolkit, you begin one of the first sort of um parts you talk about what well-being is and well-being, what well-being isn't. Yeah. And I know for me throughout my teaching experience and now doing what I do, my sort of definition, if you like, of well-being has definitely shifted over time and it means different things. And the more teachers I work with, it continues to sort of evolve. But again, it's going to be difficult to probably sum it up um, potentially. But for you, what is well-being? And as same as me, has it shifted over time? I think it very definitely has, um, Charlie, because I think, um you know, one thing I, I talk about in the book and uh, and and elsewhere is some some of the myths around well-being and um you know one of those is oh it's, it's, it's having some cake in the staff room for example uh, or, or or a shared lunch um but they're, 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 they're nice things to do um you know sort of bringing cake that's very kind um but it's not well-being in itself acts of kindness we do we definitely very much need to need to have in place but well-being is about a real sense of satisfaction in life and our life consists of our personal time in our homes with our families or our, on our own if we choose to do that and our space in work and it's about getting a combination and a balance of those for a sense of overall happiness. Um, if we think of a sort of eudaimonic well-being, um, which goes back to the ancient Greeks, it was um, Aristotle talked about eudaimonia. Uh, it's a, a sense of happiness in your in your life. And it's important to be able to have that balance. So really, when we talk about well-being, Obviously, I've written about well-being for teachers, but it's actually a societal concern. It's not just for one particular profession. And where people are not happy in their workplaces, that comes out in the way that they perform their jobs, but it also comes in the way they talk about their jobs. And we're currently in a time where I think workplace well-being is probably quite low because we look at the number of uh, people from different sectors of um, uh, public life who are taking uh, industrial action at the moment. So we have ambulance drivers, nurses, uh, post office staff, uh, rail workers who are clearly there's an element, obviously, of, of, of pay and cost of living as well. But there's if they were not happy with what they're doing, mm. that is what well, that is coming out in. That, that form of protest so that's 
that level of well-being, that work-life balance is not always present in many, many places. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, so that, that's, that, that, that's, that's a crucial thing. So that that's changed. So well-being, originally thought, oh, it's doing things for people. It's, it's enabling. It's about enabling people. Because well-being will look different for everyone. Yeah. As, as I often say with some people, it's their well-being is served by having time to go out and go for a run, uh, walk in the countryside, run up a mountain while swimming, or other people who will equally just want to binge a box set, uh, go down to the pub and have a few uh, couple of pints with uh, with some friends and set the world to rights. It looks different for everyone because we can't all be the same. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you, um, in one of the earlier parts of the book, you, you mentioned about being nice and that mm. that's actually it's almost I don't think these are the words you use but it's almost you know let's say you're a leader and you know we're all leaders at some level um you're a leader and, and you're you're beat you're trying to care for well-being by by being nice it's almost a case of diminishing returns because mm. then people can take I think, I think you talk about taking advantage and you talked yeah. about you know those sorts of things and it, it's very difficult isn't it to have I think boundaries around well-being yeah but, but there have to be. There has to be structure. There absolutely has to be because everyone has an entitlement to well-being. It's, it's absolutely equal. Um, so you say being nice again. Nothing wrong with that. Like, like kindness, it's not a soft skill, but it's um, yeah. You, you could be prone to being advantage, taking advantage of. So an example would be um, somebody's finding things a bit busy, offering them. Um, Offering to do their playground duty in their place while they do, uh, they catch up on something or just take a take a breather. As an occasional thing, that's very nice. But if that becomes, if you're approached as school leaders, oh, I can't do the playground duty this week. Mm. Um, can you take it away? Give that to somebody else. Somebody else may actually be you as a leader. So you might actually find out you're taking many more playground duties because someone else will find out about that. Um, and actually, that situation I, I I was in at one point in time, I found I was actually doing a playground duty every single day, which if something myself was playground as a school leader you should be doing. It was something I found immensely enjoyable to work in and interact with the children, particularly children who weren't in class I was involved with. But it was giving me an extra amount of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, those fifteen minutes of, of break times, I could have been doing something I, when I was. In, in class teaching, I could have caught up with a bit of marking. In, in, but instead, I was catching up at the end of the day. So that's just an example of uh, of what being honest could be taken advantage of, uh, and and firm boundaries, recognizing that everyone's got their own entitlement to to their own well being is important mm. to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. I remember from the event in October as well, one of the things that stood out for me was you talked about um sort of side in, well-being being a side in. And you yeah. um is it is it a sociograph? Have I said that right? Sociogram, yeah. Sociogram, yeah. But the, sociogram, the relationships. Yeah. That's the what I, I I thought that was fascinating because you never never thought of think, well, who interacts with who and who supports someone else's well-being and maybe sometimes not not quite so much and just how your staff staff relationships, I guess, and staff interactions. Can you sort of tell us a bit about that? Because I found that really sort of eye-opening. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the, with the sideways-in model first. Um, that came about because, um, again, through conversations that came about uh, with with colleagues, uh, and particularly as I was researching the books I had, um, 
uh, over 3,000 responses to surveys I've put together. Uh, and one com common theme was um, school leaders saying there's a lot of well-being in place because they put things in place. We do this for ourselves, this, 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 and this. Um, yeah, which might be PPA at home, great. Cakes in the staff room, we briefly discussed that. Shared lunches, shared time. Um, again, it doesn't suit everyone. I mean, they, they might say in a, in a report to governors, we do this for our staff. Have they negotiated that with anyone? Uh, if it's imposed, then there isn't a sense of ownership. If it's a bottom-up model, the feeling there, and this can, like, a lot of school leaders have said when they have had a wellbeing committee, they feel it's not actually a wellbeing committee, but almost like um, um, a, a trade union talking shop. Mm. Uh, grievances to be heard. If there are grievances in the workplace, they need to be taken seriously, and unions have a specific role there. But well, it, they don't need to address all wellbeing workload issues. Um, and something else is also quite common from school leaders is that when they do a survey, um, again, it just becomes an opportunity to have an offload of issues mm -hmm. rather than what can be, be done about it. And then that becomes a reactive um, a reactive response comes from, from that. Perhaps just in response to just a few voices, because you can, there are, in any workplace, you're going to have a few more dominant voices in others. And I think sometimes in teaching, that often stands out a bit more, mm. that you might have a few dominant voices who can perhaps be influential upon younger members of staff, um, more innocent members of staff, if you want. And sometimes that can cause problems. We often hear about toxicity in schools. Uh, toxicity doesn't always come from uh, leaders who are lacking in empathy. Toxicity can also come from elsewhere. Um, you know, gossip uh, is one of the biggest issues in, in schools. So that, that's why the sideways in model it comes about, because sideways in is about taking responsibility for your own well-being but for everyone else's as well. And to go back to, again, my, one of my concurrent themes is we, everything we do and say and think impacts upon everyone else. So the sideways in model is talking about taking responsibility for your actions and realizing what impact that might have. Mm -hmm. So you having a bit of a moan to somebody in, in as an aside, about another member of staff, that might be somebody that other member of staff is actually quite close to, and they feel upset that they're being spoken to like that. Or you had someone having a moan at you for something you've done that can be upsetting to you, and you need to be able to have a have a, bit, a response about how that impacts you as in your workplace and. Uh, one thing I think perhaps we're not always very open to in this country is actually talking about how other people's behaviours and words have on us, mm -hmm. um, how we speak to staff, um, 
is important. It's not what you say, it's how you say it, because often we, we do have to deliver um, you know, bad news about um, um, class results or, or, uh, or an observation results of a learning walk, but there's ways to do it. Uh, so you don't have to go in and all guns blazing. You can make a professional conversation about an area for improvement. It doesn't have to be something to batter somebody over the head with. So sideways in is about taking that responsibility. Uh, and to go out to the sociogram, um, obviously we're, we've got, got listeners here. Well, I, I'd always recommend if you're, if you're just listening to this is actually search Google image of a sociogram. But basically what that shows, you've got everyone, everyone's name in a circle and you think about how they interact with each other. It's a really good model to use for school leaders getting to think about your staff and how they work. It's also good for class teachers to use with their children if you're really getting to know your class, know what the relationships are. Uh, and as you fill it out, you can basically devise your own system of arrows, colours, thickness of arrows but they can show what sort of interactions are being had in the workplace. Um, and if you've got an arrow going to somebody and back to somebody, it means that interaction is going both ways, but sometimes there's only arrows coming out. Now, does that mean, it comes read down to context, does that mean that person, they're just giving out instructions and getting nothing back again? Or does it mean really thinking about a well-being side are they someone that gives out lots of support but gets nothing back mm -hmm. and i think it's really crucial for school leaders to, to know that who are the people who are getting nothing back and how can you support them in that that um network that you're building as a school um uh, but equally, it might also mean that you, you don't know that person, you don't know enough about, some people will keep themselves to themselves, which, of course, they're quite within their, their rights to do. But it's an interesting exercise to do, uh, just to get that real level of understanding of how your workplace actually sits as, a, as an organic structure. Mm, really interesting. When you start to think about it, it's it's quite tough as well, because sometimes you don't, you might not know who is friendly with who and, and sometimes it can be a real eye-opener you know you can do i guess you could uh, as a class teacher you could maybe do, do this with children in your class as well yeah you know that would that would work quite well but it's yeah. it's an eye-opener yeah i i didn't work with children on it um I, actually i think it's quite good for to next time to do with, with with older children is think about that and think who who are the dominant who are the, the the more dominant children in the class because you you always get them it's not um, it's not it's not a bad thing it's just it's often how things come about. Some children don't realise. I mean, I think I've experienced of, of many years, particularly teaching, teaching year six, someone who was a, a popular child, you know, always polite, always kind, but, you know, they hadn't always realised that they were the centre of attention and everything, and listened to what they, they said. They weren't going out to be like that. And I've had one or two who, who realised that and they said, no, I want to, I haven't spoken to that person, I haven't spoken to that person, and they've been sensible enough to say that. So that's yeah. that's that's why it's a pretty good exercise to to do it. It can take up, um, particularly if you think about the start of a year, if you're in, particularly in primary school, if you're taking on a new class, um, they know their relationships with each other, but you're, you don't as a new teacher. 
uh, if they if they followed each other up through the uh, through the school. So that's a good uh, a good way of starting your year off thinking about your um, the relationships within a class, and they they know their um, they know their tribe, as it were. And um, I know you're going to be speaking to Adrian Bethune very soon. Adrian talks about tribe, a tribal classroom. Mm. And uh, he talks, um, class flags is one of his um, his great features of his book, which I, I've used uh, in, in my last few years of teaching. I made use of that because I gave a real strong sense of belonging in a class because they were able to share in their flags what their values were as a class and as, and as individuals as well. Mm. I, I think that goes for we we started to do that actually towards the end of my my um my teaching career as well um and i think it's really powerful any sort of any community i think any group of people need that tribal feeling that tribal sort of connection don't they because we are that's what we're built for we yeah. haven't really evolved that much really when you think about it we're still built for that connection and i think i know that you are very passionate about relationships and sort yeah. of connections um you know, clear from from just that sociogram and, and, and what you spoke about there. But I think when I've experienced maybe um trying to put this sort of pol- uh, politely, um when when in my teaching experience I've I have experienced difficult patches of well-being, let's say, and difficult cultures of well-being and, and maybe not quite as positive as they could be, communication has probably been 90% of the time communication has been at the center. And communication is very, very difficult, of course, across the school, because you're dealing with tens, maybe in some places over, you know, over a hundred members of staff and adults and, you know, then, then, then the rest as well. So communication is of course, always going to be difficult, but for you, how much do you feel that communication is, is the center? Because for me, I would honestly say it's, it's the majority of what I've experienced Mm -hmm. uh, during my time. Yeah. Communication, uh, however much you do think, this is why people say you don't communicate enough. Mm. Um, yeah, again, this comes particularly from 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 leadership. So what I'd I'd often find, um, you know, in in my time, if you communicate too much, let's say particularly with email, mm. then you just swamp people with it. So. Um, Crucial things went out, but uh, a, a weekly email going out at the end of the week uh, on a Friday, um, enabling somebody to to read that. I I they could read straight away or read it over the over the weekend with everything they need for the week in place mm. uh, is, is essential. So you have the diary diary for the week ahead, but also the diary for the rest of the term is included in there as well. So people are looking ahead at other events. So nothing comes as a surprise. Um, but other ways of communication, there's um, um, so obviously mobile phones. Many schools have a, have a staff WhatsApp group sharing essential uh, essential information. Um, you can stick it on a notice board and, and you can tell them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> often find there's people that say, oh, no, still not enough, not, not enough communication. Yeah, you've done all those ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but let's think more, more broadly about communication, how we actually coordinate and speak to each other. Um, and, and sometimes if the opportunity isn't there to speak with each other, 
um, that that's sometimes a missed opportunity in in, in some ways. Uh, again, it all comes comes back down to relationships again, doesn't it? Um, we we build our relationships in life as we build our relationships in work by talking to each other principally uh, and having an opportunity to talk and to to find out about each other professionally and, and perhaps also to find out about each other personally as well. Um, I think it's important. I mean, some people would, would say we don't need to know about the ins and outs of our, our staff's personal lives, but I, I would argue contrary to that because if you've got an understanding of, of where they're coming from, if you understand you know who's going through a divorce that's important who's going through um a family illness that's important because you understand there's other things going on in their life and you can understand how you can deal with them professionally but also recognizing there's other other things happening around them that's that's crucial if we don't have that we don't have empathy and empathy is one of those, again, other soft skills in life, um, which some people would say you need to teach it. Some people would say that some people just have it naturally. Um, I think it's important to point out when people are lacking empathy, um, because, again, that's considering the impact of what they say and what they do. Um, but I think if you're empathetic, you've got a level of understanding it doesn't mean you're being more, you're giving someone a favourable favorable treatment because of something, but you're recognising that their circumstances are making things more challenging for them. So yes, think of an example um, from, from my, my time uh, when I was deputy head, uh, I had a colleague who's um, one of their parents was quite seriously unwell. Uh, it came... Um, came rather out of the blue uh, and they required time away uh, because uh, to support their parents uh, and empathetically school leader will be wary of this uh, aware of it rather than wary, wary um, and will actually put things in place to support them recognising that they might need uh, more supply they may need a little bit more simply when it comes to taking some time off to meet medical appointments that they might be needing to meaning to leave the building earlier than their other colleagues might be uh, and a crucial thing there is thinking about anticipating conversations that people have because as a school leader i never ever looked at the times that people came and left the building because it's out of time to them but i do hear of people that do look at that and there were times I had to um, just close down conversations where people talked about the time that various other people left the building. And I said, pointed out, it's, it's not your business. And when it said, well, your deputy head, you should be concerned. I said, my concern is that people are fit to do their job. Mm. And uh, that's the most important thing. And the fitness to do your job enables you to live your life as well as do your job mm -hmm. that's uh, and that's, i suppose that's one of the things that um that uh that, that's where my writing is growing from mm. 
Mm. By, by having that principle, personal principles, values are really important to me. Or having that principle and, and being consistent with that uh, was something I'm going very glad that I had in my teaching and leadership time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the big things um, that I see when people are sort of um, uh, elected, uh, or I say elected, given the duty of being well well-being lead or, or mm-hmm. head of well-being or whatever one of the first things that a lot of people do is a survey yeah and as we've been chatting it's sort of popped into head talking about communications relationships um not over communicating but definitely not under communicating all those things a well-being survey can can go very much go one of two ways from personal experience and i think it's it, it can be quite sort of difficult because a lot of the time they're done with the best intention in the world um of course but sometimes they can add to add up to be another 20 30 minutes of work for people to do or workload for people to do, mm-hmm. to have so when it comes to a well-being survey first of all are they a good idea um does it depend and what sort of key themes should be sort of high or would be would be people benefit from highlighting in a survey so maybe not specific questions because obviously that's quite Quite yeah, difficult. that's yeah. It's quite it's obviously context heavy there. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think they are they are um, they are a good thing. Uh, I know that some school leaders are nervous about it because they think um, that sometimes it can just become um, uh, an excuse just to uh, uh, for listening for moments, for example. Or sometimes it can be a bit coordinated, as I, I I'm, I'm aware. Again, from my um, my research, that number of school leaders felt that uh, there'd been some coordination from um, uh, from dissenting elements within the school to be critical of the leadership. Um, now, there's a difference between criticism and constructive criticism, um, and I can see where that came from. But I, 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 the line I always take is that school leaders are afraid you've got to be able to to suck it up. And say, and you'll know where it come. Something's come come from, and you can probably, uh, even in um, anonymous surveys, you can probably identify where they're coming from. It's where the uh, it's where you've got some very similarly worded phraseology that you can tell there's been some collusion. Um, but I, th- I think in most cases, there probably isn't an element of that. If um, uh, and if you do an electronic survey. Uh, I think staff would feel better at that because things like handwriting can't be identified, for example. Mm. Um, but I would always suggest with the survey, you know, make it part of the culture of the school. So it's something that's going to be done on a regular basis, whether it once a year, twice a year, or, or, or whatever, and allow time for it, perhaps in professional development meetings. But I'd always suggest having a balance between uh, questions where you can give a score on a one to five or a one to ten scale, because again that that's that, that's scalable and it gives you something to measure against. But follow that up with uh, with a text box, which is, well, what can we do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, obviously, schools unlimited budget is the biggest limit at the moment, uh, and and amount of staff is not a limit at the current in time, but by offering that, it means you can show as a school leader that you're listening. Mm. Uh, and obviously, so there'll be one or two very individual ones, but there may be some 
some common themes about it. And you can always take a you said, we did approach because I think most things aren't going to be unreasonable that Peter Staff would say. Uh, they usually go out about workload, which would be about marking or amount of planning, uh, expectation around email. That's the kind of thing that might be um, that might be covered. Particularly if you're if you some of your questions are are more specific uh, that might generate some particular responses, then you can act upon that. Um, if you leave them more general, then there might be that's where some of the the more negative responses may come in. But if you think about some specific points uh, and, and keep it in context, because you might be you might write your survey in relation to specific things written by members of staff, or in response to the previous year's survey. Um, so, for example, if emailing comes up as uh, as one thing, the, the problems with emailing, some, some of it comes from uh, leadership, but also comes from other members of staff who don't have, um, I don't have a filter about emailing and, and the times they send emails out. So what one one particular thing I put in place after um, issue was raised about emailing with staff was we put in um, uh, a strict time frame uh, when emails could be sent. Uh, and we said, um, I think initially between um half past seven in the morning, half past five at night. Uh, because that was a time frame that suited everyone. And uh, when I've um, when I've shared that on social media uh, in the past, somebody said, Oh, wouldn't that be at much? You could be there half past seven. And I said, that's actually our context. You know, you might you might choose an, an eight till five limit or mm. uh, or uh, you know, nine till six. You know, it, it's, it's what it's what your context suits. That's that's the thing. So there's no sending of emails after that time or a requirement to read them. Uh, I mean, some people can learn to schedule an email, for example. It's not something like this. Uh, I either learned at the uh, the time, uh, but uh, I, I realise you uh, realise you can. So nothing stopping to reading, writing an email at one particular point in time or reading it at a particular point in time, but it's a requirement for a response that was taken out. Um, uh, and also in response to that, uh, my advice was to everyone, take your school emails off your own phone. If you're going to access school emails, do it on a device. It means you've got to consciously log on to a device, your laptop or your computer at home or your computer back at school. If your phone, obviously, <laughs> we're at a, a time where many people are wedded to their phones, it would seem, you take your school emails off, you're not going to be bothered by that. Mm. As well, so so being being responsive to a survey is the important thing. So going back to our original question, are surveys important? Yeah, yeah, I think they are, but only if they are seen to be listened to and acted on where they can be acted on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not uh, certainly not a tick box. No, <laughs> definitely not a tick box. <laughs> Um, so in, in, in the wellbeing toolkit, again, just to quickly pop back to the book, you, you, you talk a lot about sort of growing the culture. I remember at the event you talked about, was it runner beans? Was that the example? Yeah, runner beans is the yeah. nice, uh, nice metaphor I like to use. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of the, the growing, the fact that it's not just overnight, here's a document. Oh, we, we are now have a culture of wellbeing. It's not, it's not that simple. It's about growing. Um, and in the book, you talk about a thriving culture as well. So this is obviously not it's it's not a um 
quick fix. It's something that takes time. It, it takes focus, it takes, you know, quite a lot. What sort of top tips or advice um, or again, themes would you sort of share with leaders when they are, if they were thinking about building or growing their own culture of well-being or improving the current culture of well-being? What sort of headlines would you touch on, do you think? Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about um, the, 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 the metaphor of growing again. Um, you know, if you, if you take on an allotment, you, you need to start off with what's the ground like? So taking on a school, if you're a new, new head teacher, you need to work, you need to know what the environment is that you're working in. And I've known that her teachers started in, in a school and they've given it six months to a year of looking at what's been in place already and then deciding what needs to change. Coming in with the change straight away sometimes that might be needed, but are you taking the temperature in the workplace mm. or are you simply imposing what you think or what you've been told by perhaps by someone who's not got things in context? And, um, you know, people who often quote things out of context are, to be frank, offset inspectors and local authority advisors who don't see things day to day. Mm. Um yeah, I think we, we do need to recognise that, that is sometimes said, and, and they have the power to uh, to change the vision, the, the way a school looks. So, you know, take the temperature of the, of the, the school, what, work out what's your what's your soil like, what's your fertility like of your, your, your soil in, in your school. So really find out, So like I've said before, about cultural relationships, cultural relationships come together. What are the relationships in your school? Are there any? Are they are they fractured? Are they toxic? Are you in a workplace where there's there's groups that don't coordinate together, or are your staff united? Are your staff well skilled? Uh, so yeah, really get to know your staff straight away. I mean, certainly put in there's, there's things you can put in place straight away. You know, things that you think will build a team. Um, I'm not keen on things that were like uh, team building days, you know, go and make um go make a tower out of burn newspaper or or a house out of uh, uh, spaghetti and marshmallows. You know, spaghetti and marshmallows uh, for it's either your dinner or putting in your hot chocolate rather <laughs> than building things. But um you know, you know, think thinking about a team, you know, give, give, give them a task, give them a task that's something to do with the school, uh and, and observe how of that group works. Who's a doer? Who's a sayer? Who's an organizer? Who's an observer? Who seemingly sits back um, and does things in a different way? Uh, it sounds a bit like the apprentice, really, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. When you're doing, doing a task, but if you actually if you look at those tasks, ignore the ignore the toxic side of them, and you look at how the um, how uh, Karen and Tim look at the teams and how the teams work together and the way they report back to, to Lord Sugar. They, they're talking about who's taking decision, who is a good listener, who's got initiative, who acts on things that go wrong. Those are the sort of people who do well in that, the apprentice process. Those are the kinds of things you might look out for as a, as a school leader. Um, 
and, and those are some of your key people. And there's people that don't get quite so bold who are, are a bit confrontational. You know, there's things you can do with them. Mm. Yeah, but you, that's it's a way of identifying the relationships. It goes back to that, that socio. It might enable you to start building that sociogram about how they work. Because it may be that person's in a, in, in a, a team for that particular exercise that they don't particularly have strong relations to those people from somewhere else. The, the outcome might have been different. It's part of your process, but it's getting to know your staff and how they work is important because you know we're at a time where we need, we need to preserve our staff, we need to preserve our teachers and the profession uh, because there is um, education support partnership is saying that more than half are looking to seriously about moving on not only from their schools but from the profession per se. Mm. This is very scary statistic. Mm. No, very worrying in that. Um, so Andrew, this has been. I mean, I've I actually loved this conversation. It's been been fantastic, and I know that I could probably chat to you all day about this kind of stuff. And if it's okay with you, it would be great to get a part two booked in because oh, very definitely, Charlie. Yes, yeah, yeah. From what we've discussed today, that my yeah, I've got many notes, many things to to, to dive into with you another time. But thank you so much for giving us your time and running running us through your something that's very passionate. Uh, you're very passionate about sorry something that's very important to you and um, so i do really really appreciate that where can everyone find you if they want to sort of find you online or, or, or offline yeah uh well you can find me through uh uh if you want to, uh, to find out about my my writing the well-being toolkit and the accompanying volume the well-being curriculum which is for uh for primary school children are both published by uh, bloomsbury education uh you can find me on uh twitter at at Andrew underscore Cowley 23. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, as well. Just search for me. Uh, very nice black and white picture of me, uh, which is my uh, current publicity shots is used on both of those. Um, uh, and of course you can uh, listen to me on this podcast again. I, I have recorded one or two for other, other people as well. So you can find uh, the, 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 the message that I give is quite, uh, is quite consistent throughout there but uh, yeah please please go in touch if you you need to ask anything about uh, about well-being uh, in in your workplace or whatever who, whatever your role in school whether you're a school leader whether you are a class teacher a ta school business leader as i said well-being is for everyone and it comes from everyone absolutely absolutely and if you are thinking about the well-being toolkit if you're watching this if we put this video anywhere <laughs> this <laughs> is the cover 100% go and check it out. It's it's a fantastic book. It really, really is. Like I said, I, I wish I had this when I was in the classroom. I really, really do because it's amazing. It really, really is brilliant. But Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, Charlie. And uh, good luck to all the, uh, all the viewers and listeners. Yeah.